Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right. There is no way for me to politely um, express my reaction to the non-fungible token auction <laughs> news that we got yesterday. I mean, I think most people, when they saw this headline, NFT sets digital art record in $69 million sale, um, most people have been shocked. And everybody I've spoken to, granted, they've all been over the age of 19, has had trouble explaining it. So we're going to bring in John Wu. He's president of Ava Labs and may be able to better uh, to help us better understand what happened yesterday um, when someone agreed to pay $69 million for a piece of digital code somehow attached to artwork. John, uh, please give it a shot. <laughs> hey, Paul. Hey, Matt. Thank you for having me. And Paul, it's nice to talk. It's been many years since I was on the buy side as a tech and media investor and you were on the sell side. So That's nice right. <laughs> yeah. So I think it was fantastic. First of all, how cool was it to watch the artist live stream or st and watch it later on on YouTube and stream the actual auction? You got to see how they were. It went from three to fourteen, then you had some big jumps to fifty, and then straight to sixty-nine. That was just incredible. So I think you know what happened yesterday is really a function of not how, not just how much people appreciate people's art, which is fantastic. His previous piece sold a little ways back for six million, so he's a fantastic artist. But it's also uh, enthusiasm for the whole space because a lot of people now thinking what NFTs can be and what they will do. The let's start with that. What, let's start with okay. what it is, John, because I think people's art is pretty cool, too. But what was it that what Justin's son bought? Okay. So he bought uh, uh, basically a non-fungible token, which is basically a unique digital representation of that. And he actually has the only one of that representation. But it's a line and of code, very, then, essentially. It's a line of code. But, I mean, think about it, though. The whole space. So he, that art is fantastic. But the whole space is interested in this area because business models are, are going to change. Um, the collectible side of this is exploding also because the code enables price discovery better. What I mean by that is because it's cold code, because so it's frictionless, suddenly you don't have to have paperwork and paperwork upon paperwork. You, it's digital. And then you have global asset access, giving more uh, people around the world to participate in these things. And that leads to better price discovery. I just talked about participating, uh, watching it on YouTube. I was fortunate enough as an investor to be able to go sit at Sotheby's and competitors to Christie's and watch how these auctions were done. Suddenly, Everyone can participate and watch it and see how this was done through the. Uh, uh, oh, no. Oh, no. We lost John. Did we? Yeah, in, a, in, in, in an age where you can pay $69 million for a line of code, we can't get phone lines to stay good. Exactly. I, I mean, I. I agree with you, Matt. I, th I found it just fascinating. I'm trying to get, I'm still trying to get my head around NFTs, and fortunately, there's a Bloomberg Quick Take there that that really furthered my education. But you know, I guess it's just a question of simply, uh, 
you know, authenticating these things. John, do we have you back? Yes, I'm back. Sorry. All right, John. So, so yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, I don't know where I left off, but, you know, I was saying I'm very excited about NFTs in general and all these artists using it because business models can change. And what I mean by that is there are there are other rock bands, groups, event stuff, uh, people all calling us to help them create NFTs. So right now, ticketing, I mean, the QR code is actually fraught with fraud. Um, artists now can actually program secondary sales and get a percentage of the sales like they couldn't before. So it's almost like a friend star getting royalties. Tell us and what from, you do at Ava you, Labs, John. So I'm president of Ava Labs. We are a blockchain, a next generation blockchain that provides the scale and speed to enable transactions like yesterday's um, sale in the NFC world. And what does Justin Sun, so Justin Sun is the investor who bought this. He paid in Ether, which is kind of a cool side note. But what does he, I mean, he doesn't get a painting or there's nothing signed by Beeple. Um, What does he have with this line of code? Like, can he click on it and see the artwork or um, I just don't, I I just don't, I can't get it. Yeah. So he can have the representation of it on his phone. He's the only one that has it, but you don't really know what he wants from it. Maybe this is the way he thinks of his digital identity, his sovereign identity. In other words, like we are becoming more digital every single day. And maybe this is the way he wants to represent himself. Think about way back when, when Prince had a big fight with his label, because basically the Prince name was effectively owned by, you know, whatever label he was at. And suddenly he created these symbols to represent who he was to end around that process. So maybe Justin is using this as his future sovereign identity and to represent who he is. And that could be very cool. It does say a lot about him. He paid a lot. So that tells you something about him and it tells you his style of interest in art. So that's maybe what he's trying to use it for. All right. So he's speculating because he thinks he can resell this because there's far more access around the world to buy this and there's better price discovery. So in theory, I guess I've also seen news, John, that, you know, LeBron James uh, creating an NFT on a highlight reel. So this can be applied in theory to almost any type of content, couldn't it? That's right. That's right. Um, Unlike the uh, content, a lot of the content we used to uh, study, I'm not sure the content that's being created in some of these NBA Top Shot stuff can be resold. It is really more of a collectible. And there's an emotional connection, just like someone buying baseball cards. They have an emotional connection to that moment, that shot, and they're willing to to pay a high price for it. Just like I have a set of baseball cards somewhere that probably is not worth that much, but it means a lot to me personally. All right. So what are some of the next applications we should look for, Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask. I think you're going to see business models change. Um, Event ticketing, for instance. Right now, the artist basically sell tickets and it goes out to the world and sometimes there's resales of it through Ticketmaster and other places, suddenly they can have control and see where those tickets are going. And it's better in the sense that, you know, QR codes is, uh, can easily be replicated and three or four people can show up for that same seat. This will be harder going forward. Like I said before, artists now can have um, basically streams of revenue associated with secondary sales of their uh, collectibles, digital collectibles, their art, or whatever it is. 
Wow, this it opens up so many different avenues. I'm not sure where to go, but this is. I feel like we're in a, obviously the very, very, very early innings here. We're going to learn a lot more as we go along. John Wu, thanks so much for joining us, John Wu. He's a president of Ava Labs. They're based in Miami. Well, President Biden's $1.9 trillion uh, bill that was recently signed, that brings the total, including last year, to $6 trillion in fiscal stimulus tied to the coronavirus. The question is, is that enough? Is that too much? Let's dig in with Nir uh, Kasser. Uh, he is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and along with Tim O'Brien, uh, Nir wrote a column saying, you know what? Biden's war on COVID demands wartime stimulus, and it certainly feels that way. Nir, thanks so much for joining us here. When you think about the fiscal stimulus that we've uh, you know, put through, again, that $6 billion number, put that in context for us. Well, you know, there's a lot of hand-wringing about the size of this, uh, of this relief effort, and I think it's more relief than stimulus. Um, and it does seem like a lot. $6 trillion is a lot of money. Uh, but when you put it in historical context, when you look at, you know, other big spending measures, and we, we used as an example, you know, what we spent on the World War II effort, when you put that in the context of a larger Dude. economy, it's, it's, not, it's not that big. I mean, one thing to keep in mind is we have a $21 trillion economy. So $6 trillion on that is just under 30%. In 1945 alone, um, you know, defense spending was 40% of GDP. So when you put it in broader context, it doesn't appear as big. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't reasons to criticize it. As we have said, there are, you know, we wish that the $6 trillion had been spent more, let's say, smartly, you know, more targeted relief, more on infrastructure, education, and public health. But size doesn't seem to be a, a very smart criticism of this of this relief effort. I don't know, man. I mean, to use the term hand wringing when talking about six trillion dollars seems a little bit loaded. That's a lot of money. And to compare this to World War II, in which 75 million people died, seems um, a grand gesture. Uh, I think it's fair to say this is an absolute ton of money going into the economy. And I don't think that Larry Summers' concerns about overheating are going too far. Um, it's it's not that I don't have sympathy for people who have lost jobs. I do, and I think it's alarming. When you look at um, initial jobless claims, we're at records every single week since August, and you know it's worse than it was in the great financial crisis. But still, this is a big sledgehammer with which to hit this problem. And I think a comparison to World War II is just going a little far. Well, I mean, you can compare it to, to uh, that's fine. I mean, you can compare it to anything you like. I mean, I think the thing. But not something in which 75 million people died, because that's an even bigger pandemic than this. By, like, exponentially well, bigger. Well, not in the U.S., in fairness, right? 75 million people didn't die in the U.S. But, but, but way more. What, how many people, how many Americans died in World War II? But, but let's leave that aside for a minute. I mean, I, I think what we ought to talk about is what is it that we're trying to solve? What should be the solution and what are the potential problems? I mean, one of the things that Larry Summers is worried about, as a lot of people are worried about, is inflation. But if I said to you, show me where inflation is, is worrisome in this moment, it would be very difficult to produce that evidence. I mean, in theory, you could get more inflation from the cocktail of factors that are on the table. Supply chains obviously are strained. There's a lot of stimulus and relief that's been spent. Uh, you know, saving has spiked. 
all of that in theory would cause inflation. But there's no, we haven't seen inflation. There's no reason to think that worse than inflation is actually on the horizon. Now, now couple that with the fact that you have a lot of people in this country that are suffering. Yes, a lot of people have done okay in this pandemic. But there are, by, by, by good estimates, there are more than 50 million people in this country that are food insecure. Those people have to be fed. Um, and so we can argue. Especially about since their food costs is. more and more, Near. Even though you haven't seen inflation, there has been, right? In food prices and gas. Well, I mean, maybe I should ask you, what would you how would you propose to solve the problem? No, I, I'm just pointing out, I think that. Um, it, it's better to err on the side of spending too much than too little. But you can't say that we haven't seen inflation and then start talking about people who can't afford food when indeed we have seen inflation. Look at ground beef prices. They continue to march higher and higher and higher. Look at gasoline prices. Paul filled up for $3 a gallon. So we have seen inflation and listeners and viewers get really angry when they have trouble paying the grocery store bill and it's expensive to drive there and then they hear on Bloomberg Radio that we haven't seen inflation because of course we've seen inflation. It's just that you know maybe iPads aren't more expensive but the stuff they need to live is more expensive. Hang on we should share the numbers. So uh, as you know Core CPI last month the number came in less than expected year over year Core CPI is up 1.3% and CPI is up 1.7%. That's still well below the Fed's target of 2% and well below the historical inflation rate going back to 1871 yep. of 2.2%. So while we can cherry pick you know, one, of the other, uh, one of the other sort of data points, the, the larger picture still shows that inflation has, um, has been low. And, and if anything, we're having right. trouble, even with the $6 trillion, we're having a trouble getting it up. And, by the, and yep. by the way, that's been the story of the U.S. since the financial crisis. People have been screaming inflation since then and the $4 trillion we spent to stimulate right. then, and we still haven't gotten inflation. So I, 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 I also want to that the numbers support that view. I also want to point out, Nir, that you are correct. I've, I've looked into it. Well, in terms of World War II, more people, many more people have died of COVID in America then died from World War II. 291,000 soldiers were killed in the war, um, thanks to my producer, and well over 500,000 have died from COVID. So maybe it is a fair comparison. Near KSR, thank you so much for that. We appreciate it. Let's get over to Lauren Sauer now for our weekly visit to the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, where she is an associate professor of emergency medicine. Lauren, uh, we heard President Biden yesterday say that all adults should be eligible for vaccines by May 1st. Does that seem um, aggressive or reasonable to you? I think it's probably both, actually. It, is, it will need to be aggressive um, in order to meet it. But I think it's reasonable to think that with some of these novel strategies that we're going through um, and turning on now, that, uh, you know, that, that we could see a May 1st target date, I guess I would call it, to get vaccine into the arms of of every American. I mean, I think the key about meeting that deadline is going to be beyond setting up the infrastructure and making sure, um, taking that next step to make sure that people are there waiting to receive it, um, that they can have the access points and safely get to the vaccine and that they're willing to take it. So a lot of community work has to happen between now and then. So Lauren, we're clearly right now in a, in a, in a, period where demand well outstrips supply, but presumably that's going to change uh, over the next uh, several weeks going into May. Then the challenge probably becomes, as we've heard from many folks like yourself, 
educating those folks that are reluctant to get the shot. What can you tell us now about your experiences there? Yeah, I mean, simply having the vaccine, enough vaccine available for everyone in America, it doesn't mean that everyone in America is going to, you know, wake up on May 2nd with vaccine in their arms. It's, it's a lot, there's a lot of, of really strong trust rebuilding that has to happen. I mean, um, during the last administration, we, lo- we lost a lot of our trusted communicators, especially around health and public health. And we're building that trust back up. And, and there's many communities across the country and even across the globe that, that trust wasn't really there to begin with. Um, and so we have a lot of work to do to make sure that community, vulnerable communities um, believe in the system that created and is administering these vaccines. And, and that, that is work, that's real work that has to happen and should already be happening in a lot of places. How do we go about that? I talked to Richard Edelman this morning um, who said one good idea could be to get corporate bosses to tell their employees because – you know, it's it's closer to home. You're you're likely to trust somebody right there, especially um, in a lot of cases, someone for whom you work. Do you think there are other strategies that that could work well? Yeah, I think um, the the key is to be um, to to be very careful that you're not moving from building trust to being coercive, right? And so the the boss, the employee employer relationship can be really challenging to navigate simply because. Um, it can go around like work, workplace requirements, like is this a requirement or is this a trusted relationship I have with my boss who's telling me that he or she believes in the vaccine. Um, a, a place that, that a lot of this work can be done is in the local church groups, local faith-based organization, local community leaders, people who, um, who have the trust of their community and can be messengers that this is a safe and effective vaccine and we need this for each other, for ourselves, but also for each other to keep our most vulnerable populations safe. Um, community work is growing in this space, and I think there's people um, way smarter about it than me uh, doing a lot of work here to make sure that the message is not just get the vaccine, but here's why you can trust the vaccine. Here's why the vaccine is not just safe, but also effective. Um, and it's really important to reopening the country. So, Lauren, you know, the vaccines are coming fast and furious. That's the good news. The One of the concerns that really still lingers out there are some of these variants that are out there. Uh, what's the latest? Yeah, the, um, there's several variants that I think people are keeping an eye on. I, I do think that part of what's happening is that this is the first time we've just been having variant discussions out in the public, you know, really um, all across the board. And I think there, there's a lot, the way we talk about variants is really important because some are variants of concern, some are variants to watch because they may change the dynamics of the outbreak or the pandemic. And some are, are simply natural things that happen to a virus as it moves through a population that actually doesn't change the dynamic of the outbreak or the pandemic. And so um, we're watching two or three right now that are, I think, important and may have an impact on vaccines and therapeutics. Um, But the companies are adjusting, which is good, because um, uh, along with this increased, you know, sort of observing of the variants and the science around it means that we are seeing them faster, which is also really good. What about the kids, Lauren? I mean, the boomers are pretty much covered now. Generation Golf is coming along quickly, and then your millennial cohort is going to get shots. Um, it, but still, we don't really know a lot about kids under 16, right? What's Gen Z uh, going to do? Yeah, there, there's actually work being done um, on the vaccine side to under, like bridging studies to understand how the vaccines 
do in pediatric populations in the kids. Um, and I think it is a big push to get this work done so that we can take that one step closer to reopening schools safely. So um, I, I agree with you. I think that there's still a lot of work and knowledge building that has to happen in that population. But I also think that it is being done. Um, you know, luckily the, the infections are lower, which is great for kids, but also not it, it makes it a little harder to do the studies. So um, we have to just sort of keep enrolling as many kids into those studies as we can safely and effectively um, and hope that on the other end we, we have products that are safe for them and get them back into schools faster. Lauren, thank you so much again uh, for joining us and uh, sharing your wisdom with us as we make our way through this pandemic and now through the better times of these vaccinations. Lauren Sauer, uh, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. I should note that the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP, Bloomberg Philanthropies, and this radio station. Now let's bring in Mark Metric. He's the CEO of Sachs and Adam Berger, managing director at Insight Partners. The two are working together on the spinoff of what I believe to be one of the most iconic department stores in the United States of America. Sachs Fifth Avenue is a luxury business that everyone sort of grows up knowing it's kind of the pinnacle um, of of luxury shopping as a destination in New York City. Tourists go there all the time. Um, Mark, now you want to bring it online. Uh, now you have brought it online and uh, you want to make it its own business. Why separate it? Well, uh, first, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, we've been online actually for almost 20 years. So I think it's why partner up with somebody like Insight and go to rapidly grow it. And that's because, you know, the luxury online market is about to explode. I mean, it's going to triple in the next few years. And I am a believer that 20 years ago, when we all went online the first time, we didn't invest the right way. You know, we had our stores. We had things we had to worry about. We had to be very, you know, we had to make decisions a lot, uh, you know, about, about where to invest. And I think this time, this iteration of growth, um, we're going to be there. Uh, and we're going to, you know, we're going to be able to really exploit uh, this market that's that's about to uh, triple. Adam, talk to us about uh, kind of your view of the business here. You're investing $500 million into SACS and implying a valuation of $2 billion for this business. Talk to us about, you know, kind of what was behind your investment rationale there. Well, thanks for having me as well. And you actually stole some of my thunder. Uh, the, the rationale is exactly what you said. This is an iconic department store. This is like a once-in-a-lifetime career opportunity to invest in a legendary brand like this, over 150 years old, that is making a very bold pivot to a digital-first approach. They have a, an extraordinary legacy. They're still the uh, place for designers uh, to gather and create the highest uh, experience for luxury and aspirational fashion. And that's just a rare opportunity for a software company uh, like a software investor like ours that looks at uh, thousands of companies every year. You don't get a chance in software to invest in a 100-year-old brand like this. What is it about online, the online experience that you think you can improve, Mark? And do shoppers online pick different stuff than shoppers in the store? Are they looking for different stuff? Can you aim them at different things? Well, I think, you know, first, uh, the online um, luxury experience, uh, which I, I believe we're going to reinvent, uh, candidly, uh, you can direct people, you could be there for what they want, 
But what's great about SACS is as a fashion authority, you know, and Adam mentioned it, you know, we've been doing this for 100 years uh, in our stores. We are an arbiter. You know, we help the customer pick what they want. We're not going to be even online a spear fishing type of experience where somebody wants a Gucci bag or they want this bag and they come and they get it. Saks is always going to be helping our customers find and experience the best product. Um, so that's, you know, on the, on the fashion side, on the experience side, we're going to be investing uh, and really pushing to improve cradle to grave uh, the entire customer experience. So it's everything from how we market to you, how we connect with you, uh, how we ship you the product, what it feels like when it comes to you, what it's like when you call us to chat with us about it, uh, or God forbid, if you return it, what is that like? So we're investing across the entire experience and journey, and we're doing it very quickly. I assume returns are pre-addressed labels, no fuss, no muss, put it back in the box, and you send somebody to pick it up for me. Uh, that is what's going to be happening, but you know, you know, to be honest, that's not where we are today. But yes, that investment goes towards this, and actually, uh, you know, up until Monday, Saks charged you for returns. Uh, and one of the first things we did, I mean, we closed the deal, I believe, on Thursday uh, and, and really started re-pivoting and, and pushing uh, the business. We went to free returns Monday morning. Adam, $500 million, where do you think that money needs to be invested? Well, where we've invested it is in a great team. And I know that sounds like a slightly glib comment, but that's also just a rare opportunity to have uh, this great team who was running the entire sex business now coming over and focusing first online. Uh, but where they're going to spend most of the money is, quite frankly, in marketing and increasing uh, the customer uh, base by expanding the opportunity to a wider audience. And as Mark said, uh, going up and down the line and increasing the experience, whether it's from fulfillment to customer service uh, to a better website experience, all of those uh, are, are opportunities. And we're excited to back a really strong team uh, that's also going to be uh, assisted by Sebastian Gunningham, who's joining the team as an advisor, uh, and he spent some time building the Amazon Marketplace experience. So we think we've not only got a great brand here, but we've also invested in a great team. What, well, what's your exit? I mean, um, are you looking for, uh, do you have a five to seven year window, for example? Um, do you want to keep a stake in the business? Do you want to see an IPO? You know, we're we're not great market timers and we take a different approach. We are just trying to build a great business and focus on high growth and free cash flow generation over time. So we don't walk into this with a clear exit strategy. We, we walk into this figuring out how can we help continue to grow this business aggressively over time. And if you do that, uh, it, good things will happen. And great businesses are generally uh, bought, not sold. So we're, we'll keep making it a great business and everything else will take care of itself. Hey, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really uh, exciting times for Saks, its people and that brand. Mark Metric, CEO for Saks. And Adam Berger, Managing Director at Insight Partners. They're based in Los Angeles, making this investment in Saks. As Saks uh, really takes a hard pivot to the uh, direct-to-consumer e-commerce uh, business by spinning off uh, Saks.com. So uh, we appreciate them taking the time. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973.
And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.